But it's always an honor to get to encourage one another on the weekend when we come together to honor the Lord and worship Him and take time to dive into His Word. So good to see all of you here. We always want to take a moment and welcome those in the centrum and those online. Would you welcome them into the room with us? So glad you guys are here with us. Uh, as we continue on in the series, Nate's taking just a little bit of a break this weekend, went to the old right-hander in the bullpen to come out there. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity to dive in again in this Colossians chapter 1 series called Icon. Uh, if you have a Bible, you want to turn to that, you can follow along a little bit. If you want to got a Bible app, we'll have uh, the verses up on the screen, though, so you don't have to worry either way. But it's a, it's a tremendous passage. It kind of reminds me, uh, years ago when our kids were growing up, uh, every family has this where you have movies that are just kind of... Yeah, it's just your family's movies. The ones as uh, your kids are young, you kind of bond with. They, they get a little older, you kind of like the ones that they like. At least that was the way it was for us. Uh, years ago when Lion King came out, it wasn't all that big uh, for us because our kids were in junior high and high school. So therefore, Hukuma Matata, who really cares, you know? Uh, our kids were already, they'd, they'd already hit Princess Bride. Any Princess Bride fans? Few, oh yeah, as you wish. Great, great movie. Uh, Goonies, Rachel got stuck on Goonies. She loves that one. Uh, but uh, I, I think Tommy Boy changed our lives is what it really was with Chris Farley. But one of my favorites was Sandlot, the Sandlot. Anybody Sandlot? Got that. Good. Now in the Sandlot, I, I got a feeling every service we've talked with remembers this quote. What's the famous quote of Sandlot? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me. So I've even got a T-shirt. I, I should have wore it this weekend, but it's a little tight, if you know what I mean on me. So, but but the, the moment in Sandlot that I really liked was seeing this uh, shorter kid who's a catcher and red hair and freckle face, and he's always rolling his eyes against this one kid who's new, Smalls. And the, the thing about Smalls was he didn't know anything about baseball, but it really became evident that what was so embarrassing, why would they even let him play with them in the sandlot? Because he didn't even know who Babe Ruth was. So this kid says, you don't know the babe. Oh my, the, the colossal of cloud, the king of swing, the sultan of swat, the great Bambino, I mean, every nickname for Babe Ruth and Smalls is just there. Nope, 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 no, no idea at all on that. And I think sometimes when we look at this passage and talk about Jesus being the image of God, and as we unpack these verses, I wonder how Paul really felt. Did he feel a little frustrated because he was in a world that did not recognize Jesus by any nickname and some had rejected him and those who didn't know him didn't know fully about him. And he takes this passage in this series to be able to unpack to make sure that the believers then and all of us today have a clear understanding of who Jesus really is. It's a big deal. It's really, really important. Now, I, I want to begin by just reading verse 15. That was the one two weeks ago. Uh, in that, it simply says, and it's very memorizable. Nathan said, hey, let's try to memorize it. Well, I, I'll, I'll do good to familiarize myself with it. He says, uh, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. We can remember that. He existed before anything was created and is supreme. Overall creation. Okay, we can hold on to that. Now, last weekend, we unpacked verse 16, and it gets a little deeper and a little broader. Let me read that for you. It goes on and says, For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on purpose. 
He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. Okay, we're getting a little deeper into this understanding of creation, understanding of who Jesus is and understanding the role. Now, verse 17 is the one we focus on today. Nate, being of sound mind, gave me the shortest verse in the whole passage. And I think he's kind of counting on the fact that maybe that'll produce a short sermon. How many know, if I ever have a short sermon, we're in the last days, all right? Yeah, I'll I'll try to land the plane. Uh, 10 over last night, five over last time. I'd like to wish you luck at this point right now, okay? I, I love this passage. Listen to this verse and say it along with me if you would. Just verse 17. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. One more time, and you'll have it memorized. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. I remember growing up with a a lot of old hymns in church, and some I'd sit on the back row, and I can remember a lot of them. Some uh, I I remember that I don't even think I can remember. One that was kind of neat was, I need thee every hour. And an old hymn has a tendency to repeat itself with a phrase here or there. And if you happen to have heard that before, remember it. It's real simple. I need thee every hour, most precious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee, okay? We're we're establishing there's a need. Now, bless me now, my Savior, I come to thee. That's the nature of a song. That's the nature of a poem. That's the nature of a phrase. And that's exactly what Paul did in this passage, in this whole series that we're talking about. It became a hymn. It became an anthem of the early church. So these verses that we've said, you may look and think, wait a second, it seems like they repeat themselves a lot. Well, yeah, that's what, that's what they do. A song does that to make sure there's a deep understanding to the commitment of the truth of what's there. I want to read a quote for you. Uh, I asked uh, Neil Wyndham this last week. Anytime I'll try it, I get an outline together on when I'm preaching. I say, Neil, you got an extra minute. Could you kind of look at this outline? Let me know, am I in left field? If I am, pull me into shortstop. But don't let me get in the left field bleachers. Don't let me wander off too far. And he gave me this reference to a book by Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmott called Colossians Remix. Here's what they said about this passage. It says, in a world populated by images of Caesar, who in the culture was taken to be the son of God, a world in which the emperor's preeminence over all things is bolstered by political structures and institutions, An empire that views Rome as the head of the political body in which an empirical peace is imposed sometimes through the capital punishment of crucifixion. This poem, this scripture, is nothing less than treasonous. In the space of a short, well-crafted three-stanza poem, Paul subverts every major claim of the empire turning them on their heads and proclaimed Christ to be the creator, redeemer, and Lord of all creation, including being over the empire. See, this was more than just a nice little passage of scripture that people could maybe remember and recall and share with other folks. It was more than that. It was more than just a song that they would sing even when they came to church. 
It was an in-your-face to the government <laughs> that simply says to the culture, you all say that the government and the world, whether you're global or, global or national, any of that, you think that's, that, you know, that's where your salvation is in. And he says, I'm telling you, this, who Jesus, this is who Jesus is. So if I had one phrase this weekend for us to walk away with, I hope we'll be a people who are committed to getting Jesus Right. Would you say that with me? Getting Jesus right. Not to just say, okay, I know this theologically, I know that, I know that, and hey, I knew that that you didn't know. No, it's not all about that. That's just the beginning of understanding who he is. You could look at any cult, any, any group, religious group that has major defection of biblical teaching and adds their own to it and, and uh, takes some other writing up on the same level of Scripture. And they come to a point of thinking they're the only ones that are right and they're the only ones going to heaven. And next thing you know, if it mixes in some other practices with a cult, it gets really out there. But they all have a tendency to defect in the area of what we would call Christology, understanding who Jesus is. That's always the beginning of a downfall. If what he did on the cross for us over 2,000 years ago isn't enough, then a group will start to add the wrong things to that. Now, in this one verse that we look at today, verse 17, I want to suggest two simple things. Number one is Jesus is eternal and paternal. He's eternal. He existed before everything, and he's paternal because he holds everything together. If we are the bride of Christ, the church, and he is the groom, he is the husband, then the husband, the husband's everything together, and he holds us all together, and that's what this one verse is about. But I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, we could easily break out in a little song, he's got the whole world in his hand, everybody. You know, we can do that. You know, we won't, but we could. Do you really believe in your heart right now, watching the news, seeing everything that's going on in your life and mine in this time of our life, in this era, that he has the whole world in his hands? I remember when I heard that song for the first time, they always start with the little verses. He got the little bitty babies, you know, kind of fun. He's got the mamas and the papas, an early 60s reference to California dreaming, okay? Mm, I didn't think we'd get that. Okay, back to the notes. All right. I mean, it goes from everything that he has the whole world in his hands. And I wonder, did, did God's people, when they're up against the Red Sea, did they really believe that? And they, did they believe that inclusively? Were they singing, he's got the Israelites and Egypt? They didn't want Egypt in his hands, you know? Did they sing that? Did they look at their leaders? He's got Moses. He's got Pharaoh. They didn't want Pharaoh in God's hands. And I wonder if fast forward the tape today, do you believe that he's got Putin and Zelensky? Oh my, is right. Does he have them in his hands? Yes, he does. And God is far more patient and far more tolerant than you and I, amen? He has the whole world in his hands. This is why Paul drives this point home. You and I have to know and have to understand, even when we don't think he does, even when it looks terrible, and it is, he alone is on the throne in heaven, and he alone has the whole world in his hands even though 
It may not look like it'd be the way we'd run things, that's for sure. I think the first time I began to realize part of the cynicalism uh, in the world uh, was when uh, we were out in Las Vegas and it just happened that Gene Apple, the preacher there at the church, he wanted to do a series uh, on Christian evidences, apologetics. And on the last, on the last sermon, he wanted a, 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 an empty casket on the stage, right there on the stage, you know, like you had a few, but with the, the, the lid up and see nobody's in there. It was a little spooky at first, but he wanted that to be the, the point he could refer back to, that the tomb is empty, the tomb is empty. It was a great weekend and a great sermon and a great prop. The only problem was uh, some other folks had got that, and on Monday, I was the only guy on staff that had a pickup truck. I, I take Thursdays off, or I did back then, and I was the only guy who had a pickup truck that had to return it to the theatrical rental place. So I had barely a truck. Before Nissan, there was Datsun. Anybody remember Datsun? Okay. I've got a Datsun pickup. The only thing smaller than that is a matchbox car, okay? It's really little. And, and, and I have to put this casket in the back of this little bitty Datsun pickup and go all around Las Vegas when I don't know where I'm going, before cell phones, before uh, GPS, and I get lost a couple of times. And you've never seen people freak out at a gas station until you pull up and, and ask for directions. And I went into one part that was not so much English speaking, and it made them really nervous at that point. And the gal behind the counter just kind of picked up the phone, got on it, and, and told her workers, Andale, 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 you know, get out of here. So I thought, okay, this is causing a little bit of trouble. I'll just go keep trying to find this place. I finally find, find it, had found it, and, and I come up, and I'm getting ready to unload this casket out, out of the back of the pickup truck to the rental facility, thinking, thank God I'm finally here. All of a sudden, true story, this kind of cowboy guy, with old hat on, got the boots, big old chaw right in his jaw there. He walks up, and he sees this thing, and he goes like that, takes a double take at that casket in the back of the pickup truck, and he spits on the curb, and he just looks at me and says, <laughs> Hell of a toolbox, buddy. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. That was a great, that's a great line. I don't care who you are, that's funny, all right? That, that was a great line. Uh-oh, we're turning into somebody else here. Back to this. But the, the, the moment I remember just thinking, I went to Gene, I said, Gene, here's the story that happened. I said, and you know what's crazy is you're starting this next series next weekend on reasonable doubts, and you're going to be talking about, is God real? Is Jesus real? Can the Bible be trusted? Is hell real and eternal? I said, I'd, I'd use it, but I wouldn't want to say that in front of everybody. And he said, oh, no. He said, you've got to say that. You've got to tell that story. He says, because that is the unbelieving world that just reduces hell to something else, to some extreme. Put a UVA on the end of it, and it could be cold, it could be hot, it could be good, it could be bad. It could be the, that type of an athlete that you've ever seen or a game that you've seen or anything like that. You see, that's what happens in the world that's around us. They are content to reduce the reality of God's economy and all that God does down to something else. I remember 20 years ago or so, I read a, a, about an interview with James Taylor. Love James Taylor. You got a friend, country road, fire and rain. Oh, love, love. And, and in that, he's talking about writing songs and what songwriters do. And in there, he said, sometimes you just have to use a metaphor. You know, he mentioned a couple of things. And then he said, or like Jesus. Jesus, he said, is a metaphor. I thought, oh, sweet baby James, say it ain't so, you know, please. But, and, and in his defense, maybe he was just acknowledging what songwriters do. They look for metaphors, but please don't reduce him to a metaphor. I'm here today to tell you what Paul was telling us long ago. 
We live in an age that that's how people look at God and Jesus and the word of God and heaven and hell. And Jesus is more than a metaphor. Don't let him be reduced. That's what Paul is passionate pleading about. Now, I got four questions. I'll try to hurry through them so you can hang on because I hope we're able to engage in conversations with other people and not, not to, to, to judge or condescend or anything like that, but to simply engage. But I think there's four questions that they kind of have that we need to be able to talk about and think about and, and engage with. Number one is, who is he? Okay, tell me. If somebody had to say, who is Jesus? You walk out of here and somebody puts a microphone in your face. You got five minutes. Tell us about Jesus. What would we say? I think it's important to understand he is a couple of things that we'll look at now. Number one, he is God in the flesh. Would you say that with me? God in the flesh. In John chapter one, it begins by saying, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. We'll come back to that in a minute. Go to verse 14 and it says, and the word, meaning Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God in the flesh. I love Hebrews chapter one, the first three verses. Hebrews writes there and it says that uh, uh, God spoke to us through angels years ago and through prophets in various times and various ways. But now he has spoken through his son and his son is the exact representation of the character and the glory of God. He's God in the flesh and he is the savior of the world. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, Peter's only had two sermons that he's got out. Day of Pentecost and then this one. The day of Pentecost, there are 3,000 people who show up and are baptized. By now, it says the count's up to 5,000. They're on a roll. But the Jewish leaders say, we want you to hush up about this, Jesus, because you're, you're, you're wrecking our whole system here. This is tearing everything apart. No, it was freeing everything up is what it was doing. And Peter and John say, listen, if you expect us to be quiet about what we have seen and heard, we can't. And if you, if you think we're going to obey you rather than God, you got another thing coming. And he goes on and he says, because there is no other name given to man under heaven by which we must be saved. There's no other name. He is the Savior of the world, our only hope, our only hope of forgiveness and our only hope of heaven. Now, the second question, if we understand who he is, he's God in the flesh, he's the savior of the world. Well, then what's he done? I mean, everybody has a mayor speech to tell me, what would you do if we hire you, if you're elected? Okay, we're not talking about that. What have you done? I found in interview processes, always ask them what they've been doing because everybody will tell you what they would do. What has he done? What has Jesus done? What's he accomplished? Well, in verse 17 today, it's emphatic that he created everything. Before everything, he created it all. The second thing is he left heaven. That's a little bit of that God in the flesh. Please understand that. In Philippians chapter 2, this is like a parallel passage, classic passage in Philippians 2, like Colossians 1. Colossians 1 is all about the supremacy of Christ. Philippians 2 is all about the humility of Jesus. The Bible says that he didn't count equality with God as something to hold on to, but he left heaven, took on the form of a man and a servant, and died a cruel death on a cross. I, I love Christmas. I'm married to Miss Christmas. Sue Lynn loves Christmas. Her family, as soon as that last turkey sandwich is done at Thanksgiving, boom, we're off. And the, the white album of Bing Crosby is, is rocking, okay? 
And, and me, I, I grew up a little bit different. Oh, we, we got around to Christmas. Usually Christmas Eve, dad would bring in a tree, pop it in a bucket of sand. There, knock yourself out. Okay, and that was about it. So, but I married in, I love the whole Christmas thing. You know that Christmas mug that you see? Jesus is the reason for the season. It rhymes, it's cute, it's red, it's green. It's just a little off theologically. Jesus is the source of the season. Who's the reason? You. You and me. We're the reason that he left heaven. One of my favorite Christmas songs of all time is by Matthew West called Leaving Heaven. And it's based on that Philippians 2 passage. Not only did he create everything, not only did he leave heaven to come and save us, but he conquered sin and death. In 1 Peter 3, it says Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. He never sinned, and he died for sinners to bring us safely home to God. He suffered physical death, but he was raised to life in the spirit. We need to understand what happened on the cross and what happened in the tomb. Two different things. On the cross, on, at the cross, is where he overcame sin. And sin was paid for as the anger and the wrath of God was poured out as he turned his back on his son. Father, why have you forsaken me? That's that moment. He endured hell for us. And we can be justified by what he did on our behalf. He overcame sin, but he overcame death by being raised from the dead. And after his time here, he told the disciples what's going to happen. He said, now listen, I got to go. I, I, I can't send the Spirit, the Holy Spirit to you if I don't leave. So I got to leave. That time's coming. And when I do, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And he will be uh, uh, the, the one who guides you into all truth and reminds you of the things that I've taught you. And will convict the world of sin. You can't look at the news today without understanding right from wrong. You can't look at that and say, God, it appears like you're making a pretty good judgment on us to be able to see what conviction about the preciousness of life in the midst of war going on is. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. So what has he done? He's created everything. He left heaven for us. He conquered sin and death. And he sent his Holy Spirit to live and to dwell in your heart if you're a believer. The third question, okay, well, how long has he really been around? Show me two forms of ID of Jesus here, all right? I need to know a little more. Is he really all that he says he is, or is that just a little bitty thing that they say? He is forever, in verse 17. Turn to your neighbor and simply say, forever. That's how, that's how long he's been around. There is no beginning. There's no end to Jesus. In John chapter 8, he's talking with some people there, and, and they're saying, well, Abraham was our father, and he was uh, all we need. Abraham this. And Jesus said, remember what he said? Before Abraham was, I am. He said the word in Hebrew, Yahweh, which is the name of God. Well, that they felt was blasphemous. In John chapter 1, in the, be in the beginning was the Word, Word was with God, the Word was God. He is eternal. In Revelation 1, it says he's the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, the final question. If we can somehow be able to sharpen ourselves and, and share ourselves and our 
our thought and our feeling and our teaching and our love for Jesus, in the midst of these things, understanding and engaging with the culture around us what the word of God, whether they believe that or not, God will work on their hearts. That's not our job. Our job is to declare who he is and to love and to share with them. The last question is, then what's he up to now? What is he really doing now? Well, in John 14, it says, Jesus telling his uh, disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, he said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. You're good Jewish boys. Believe in me as the Messiah. Take the next step. You understand who God is. I'm the Messiah. Come. You trust in me because in my father's house are many mansions. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. He's also, according to 2 Peter 3, waiting patiently for more people to repent. I love what Peter says there. He says, don't think that God's slow as some people count slowness. No, he's patient with you, not willing that any would die, perish eternally, but that all would come to repentance. Because a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. I, I love a joke that Bob Russell told years ago. Got a lot of mileage out of it. It's just a fun little thing based on this verse here. He says, there's a fellow one time that was talking with God. He said, God, let me get this straight. Is this right that, uh, oh, a thousand years to you is like a second? God said, yeah, that's, that's right. He said, then is a million dollars to you, Lord, like a penny? He said, yep, that's right too. He said, Lord, could I have a penny? God said, yeah, just a second. You have to hang with that one for a second. You see, he's patient. He's patiently waiting for people to come to faith. He's waiting on, on them. And he's waiting on us to go to them. What's he up to now? Preparing a place, waiting patiently. And he's working all things together for good. Romans 8, 28. That's what he does. He takes our mistakes when they're offered back to him. And he works it together for his good, his glory. And he holds all things together in verse 17. Louis Giglio is a great uh, communicator, great preacher. He uh, works with a, a group called Passion and uh, tours a lot with Chris Tomlin, a great worship leader. He was telling a story how he was just kind of, they were ending their tour and he was gonna take a little time off from what they did, a, a, a lot of those big uh, conferences and gatherings. And uh, he's gonna head uh, back home to Atlanta. And uh, on the way out uh, of one, one of the conferences he got done speaking, some fella came up to him, I believe he said it was in Tyler, Texas. And he said, Louie, what do you got now? You're about done with the tour, what do you, what do you got next weekend? And he just said, well, I headed back to Atlanta, actually going to preach the next two weekends uh, for our home pastor. Just give him a little break. He said, well, what are you going to preach on? I'm just wondering, just wondering. And he says, uh, well, a, a two-week series on the, the wonder and the glory of, of, of uh, the way God created the human body, just the, the wonder of all that. Oh, he said, that's great. He said, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say because I'm a molecular biologist. So what's your sermon? He said, well, I don't, I don't have the sermon. I got another week. I, I haven't quite got ready on that. And he said that he tried to unpack a little bit of what he was going to say about what the Bible says about the wonder of our, our bodies and God's glory. He said, but what's your left hook? What's your left hook at the end of the message. And Louis said, well, I, I, I don't have a left hook yet. I, he says, oh, let me tell you, Louis, laminin is your left hook. Uh, he, he said, I didn't even know how to spell laminin, L-A-M-I-N-I-N. -I -N -I -N. 
he said, you're going to have to help me on that. He said, just go Google it at home. Go Google it at home. He said, but you've got to understand, Louis, this is, this is incredible. He said, it's a, a self-adhesive molecule, and it bonds things together. It's a protein, and it is the, the thing in the body that organizes all the structure of the cells. It determines, it tells them where to go, and it holds every part of you and me together. Laminin, look it up. He went home, and he looked it up. And here's the picture that he saw of what laminin in the body is. And he said, that's my left hook. And and the guy calls him back. He said, did you see it? Oh, yeah, I saw it. It's incredible. He said, I got to send you another picture. You got to see laminin at work. And he sent him from an electromagnetic microscope picture of that. And here's laminin at work. The image of Jesus on the cross holding us all together. Only Jesus holds everything together in our heart and life. I called a friend this last week, Steve Gilland. He and his wife, Stephanie, been here at the church for a long, long time. Five years ago, I believe this month, Steve had a heart transplant. And he's doing well, and he's blessed, and he's thankful. And I said, Steve, would you mind if I took the picture that I took of the morning there in the hospital up in Indianapolis Uh, The T-shirt that Stephanie wore, defining her faith of the day. Take a look at the picture. When your wife shows up and you're getting a heart transplant, and it says, I got this, God. That's the way we enter into things. That's the way we take moments and just say, God, I know you're holding all things together. Even when I'm not sure what's going to happen, what you've done in our hearts and lives, God, is something that only you can do. Nathan said in this series, he wants us to take a moment and look and to say, okay, if all these things are true, then what is the idol that threatens this? What's the the teaching or the thought or the practice or the behavior that that can sneak in on me and you to keep us? Well, there's a certain amount of, of doubt and trust, but in all honesty, it's the idol of performance. If we think we can perform our way, if we think we can hold everything together and we can say, God, that's okay, I got this. No, he says, I got this. No, I got it, God. And the next thing you know, we're hollering and saying, I guess I didn't have it, God. Could you, could you help us out here? Because every one of us will face different moments and different times where we wonder, does he know what's going on? Can he handle that? And we have to operate in that, that trust that his perfection is always greater than our performance. Would you say that with me? His perfection is always greater than our performance. There's nothing I can do that's going to impress him. I can just abide and let him hold me together. Let him hold us together and do his will and trust him and declare who he is to this next generation. We're all going to have some controlling issues. We're all going to have some moments that we say, okay, God, I'm going to need some help here trusting you. He's the one who holds it all together. And we entrust our very, very lives to him. Now, this last week I I thought, okay, if we're really going to focus on all that Jesus is, I tried to do something never really done before, but uh, anyway, I give it a shot. Now, I hope I can remember most of it, but it won't appear on the screen. So if it's not right, you'll never know, okay? (laughs) But I just went through the alphabet and thought, what could I look at that honestly says who Jesus is? And could I take a moment and go through each each letter? 
The Bible says he is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the bright and morning star. He's the calm in the midst of a storm. He is our deliverer that we can depend on. He is everlasting to everlasting. He is the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. All those old hymns kind of pop up in me once in a while, the lyrics to that. He's the good shepherd. He's the holy anointed one. He is Emmanuel, could be with an I or an E, I checked. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords and the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He is the mighty one of Israel. He is the name above all names. He is omnipotent, omniscient. He is all-knowing, all, everything, omni, every word you can put with that. He encompasses it all. He is our prophet and our priest and even the king of the house of God and the people of God. Q. He is our quotable, notable, and highly promotable voice of the living God. He is the rock of our salvation. He's the stone that the builders rejected. He's our teacher, our preacher, and the maker of every creature. He is our universal savior for our universal sin. He is the victor that can never, never be defeated. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. He is our X-factor in our faithfulness and our extractor in our sinfulness. He's the yearning deep within our heart. And I had to borrow something from the medical community for Z. He's our Z-pack of our heavenly three-pack. <laughs> the only thing that can remedy our sin-sick soul. And when you say Jesus, you've said a mouthful, amen? amen? We want to hold on to him because times will come when we're tested. One of our staff members here has been with us for 16 years, Andy Clark. Uh, Andy is such a blessing. He and his wife, Abby, and their two boys. Uh, I've known Andy, of course, a long time. I went to school, college with his parents, played ball with his dad. Uh, there's a rich heritage of faith in there, but even for all of us, no matter how long we followed the Lord, there are moments that it looks like the wheels are coming off just a little bit. And they have been kind enough to share their story on video with how God saw them through a very difficult time and held everything together for them. Let's listen to their story. I'm a teacher and we were trying to get prepared for the following week of school, um, trying to make videos for virtual students, trying to have all of our copies ready. All of a sudden, all of the office staff was running down the hall towards me, and then they started calling my name over the intercom that I needed to contact the office right away. And that's when I got a text from Abby uh, that just said, Eli had a seizure, can you get to the school right now? I started moving at like 100 miles per hour and then the world was in slow motion. They just automatically put Eli on the stretcher and are ready to take him. And so like in that moment, Andy and I had to decide, okay, who's gonna go with him? 
I mean, in the middle of COVID, hospitals had a lot of regulations. Can two parents be there? And on top of that, we don't have any family that live here in town. So what are we supposed to do with a five-year-old who cannot go to the hospital? When I talked with Eli in the ambulance, he was just real quiet. Um, I don't know, it was like he was tired. It's like he wasn't fully there, but he was. Like, he would, re he would respond to you, but he just wasn't fully present. And then Andy sent me a text to say they did a CT scan and that they had found what they were calling a lesion on his brain. Uh, immediately, they started getting us ready to go do an MRI. Yeah, when I got there, the neurosurgeon came in and introduced himself to me and immediately pulled up the images and started showing me, well, this is what his brain looks like, and do you see this over here? That's not supposed to be there. I think this needs to come out. And I said, the lesion? And he goes, yeah. And I go, well, how soon? And he goes, probably tomorrow morning. I don't think I've ever experienced a moment where the only way I can describe it, I was, I was prayed out. And so when we you know, made a few posts on social media and just were bombarded with encouragement and prayers, like it, were, it was the words that we didn't know how to get out from what we were feeling in that moment. So I laid in that chair and prayed all night long and just I just sat there and listened to that heartbeat and that monitor and all those vitals just over and over for hours just because I felt like that was the only thing I could do at that moment in time. Just before the surgery, and Eli looks over to me and says, uh, Dad, I'm scared. And I told him the truth of, hey, bud, I'm, I'm scared too. So we just took a moment and pulled up some songs and just sang along and worshiped. And then we spent some time praying as a family. Feel like we were in slow motion that we were telling him goodbye and they were slowly wheeling him out of the room and then andy and i had to turn around and like walk away and everything was quiet like all the monitors were turned off and the room that had been so full of people and everything moving around for hours it was just quiet it was just andy and i just sitting there i remember that's when uh i got a text from a mentor in college that I was a good dad, I was a good husband, and to remain steadfast. I read the text, it was literally like a sentence long, and I broke down, and I remember she looked at me, she's like, what is wrong, what has happened? <laughs> and I showed her the text, and it was like, it just is what we needed in that moment, uh, a simple reminder just to hold on. After the surgery, the surgeon came in and, you know, that what it was, it was something called a cavernoma, uh, which was a, a malformed pocket of blood vessels. What had happened is that cavernoma had hemorrhaged and started bleeding, which caused all the seizures. Um, there was really no rhyme or reason as to why it would have happened to Eli. Probably less than 24 hours after the surgery, the occupational therapist came in and, and you know, started running all the different types of tests. Eli just was knocking him out of the park like he didn't have brain surgery. Uh, and the occupational therapist kind of told us that the things that he was doing 24 hours out from the surgery that most kids wouldn't normally be doing. 
a few days after we got home, Eli and I were together and he asked me, why did God let this happen to me? And I said, I think someday you're gonna be able to use this story to bring people to Jesus. And I said, I already know that's happened, that there were people that were praying for you that maybe don't often talk to God and they were doing that for you. And so your story is going to impact people's lives and how they know the love of Jesus. Do you believe that's true? Yeah, it's happening right now. <laughs>